Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam, and today's PAC show is all about resisting the normalization of war abroad and at home, resisting the idea that militarism, police terror, and hate crimes will be accepted as part of a new hyper-reality. We'll hear voices from among the hundreds that gathered in D.C. to raise up the name of Nabra Hassanin, a 17-year-old Muslim girl kidnapped and murdered in Northern Virginia. And they also raised the name of Charlena Lyles, killed by police in Seattle, and Philando Castile, whose killer just walked away free in Minnesota. The call still remains to say their names. Even as the list of names grows ever longer, the call is to not forget, to not normalize hate, terror, and murder. Also, it's the fourth Friday, and Janine Jackson, host of Counterspin, is in the house for a monthly look at media and culture. All that and much, much more is coming up, starting with other news making our headlines. The latest controversial version of Trump Care, which experts estimate will eliminate care for an additional 23 million people, was released online yesterday. In anticipation of the plan's release, hundreds rallied on the east lawn of the Capitol to save the flawed Affordable Care Act, because at least it is not as bad as this new plan. Felicia Williams, a mother from North Carolina who was part of the Moms Rising Coalition, told the crowd what Medicaid did for her family. My name's Felicia Williams, and Medicaid quite literally saved my son Ethan's life. That's why I'm here. Today, I bring with me the force of over a million moms and dads from across the nation to tell our U.S. Senators that Medicaid and the Affordable Care Act are essential for our children's lives and our nation's success. My son Ethan was born with a vascular tumor and spent most of his first two years of life uh, in and out of the hospital. I had to quit my job and forego our health insurance to care for him, but fortunately he qualified for Medicaid in North Carolina. This allowed him to get the health care he needed and allowed me to take the time I needed to care for him. 
Medicaid saved his life. Senators Jeff Merkley of Oregon and Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont, who received the biggest cheer of the day, took the opportunity to remind the crowd of the benefits of Medicare for All. At a time when 28 million Americans today have no health insurance, when many others are underinsured, our job is not to throw 23 million more Americans off of health insurance. It's to guarantee health care to all as a Healthcare experts say that none of the versions of Trump Care is actually a health care plan, but is really a tax cut plan for the rich. Now, keeping a watch on the First Amendment right to protest, the American Civil Liberties Union is suing the D.C. police for attempts to chill dissent on Donald Trump's inauguration day. The suit filed this week claims D.C. police unlawfully arrested peaceful demonstrators and indiscriminately deployed tear gas and flashbang grenades against journalists legal observers, and crowds of protesters. Scott Mitchellman, ACLU senior attorney, said, quote, It is clear to me that the Metropolitan Police came out on Inauguration Day intent on teaching demonstrators a lesson and chilling political speech in the nation's capital. The lawsuit continues, quote, In the course of the roundup and subsequent processing of demonstrators, police held detainees for hours without food, water, or access to toilets, handcuffed detainees so tightly as to cause injury or loss of feeling and subjected some detainees to manual rectal probing. Much of MPD's misconduct has been independently documented by the District of Columbia's Office of Police Complaints. Also in D.C., the Indigenous Environmental Network, Rising Hearts Coalition, Environmental Justice Organizations all rallied outside the United States District Courthouse on Wednesday to support the Standing Rock and Cheyenne River Sioux tribes as they went before a federal judge in a status hearing versus the Army Corps of Engineers in effort to stop the Dakota Access Pipeline. Last week, a federal judge ruled in favor of the Standing Rock Sioux tribe and their allies' lawsuits that the Corps of Engineers failed to complete a proper and adequate environmental assessment and that the permits issued were unlawful. The judge ordered that the agency must reconsider and reevaluate parts of their final environmental assessment as it failed to consider implications of an oil spill and has violated treaty rights and environmental laws. Jan Hasselman, an attorney for Earth First, which is representing the tribes, told those gathered after the hearing that to avoid the same environmental and treaty violations, Native American nations must be included in the process going forward. Today was, was really about defining what the next steps are. The decision this week was finding serious uh, legal violations with respect to the Army Corps' analysis. Today we looked forward. What are we going to do about resolving that and what do we do with the pipeline in the interim? Uh, our view has been that the pipeline needs to be shut down and that's what the lawyers will be briefing in the weeks ahead. I think uh, it was misreported that today he would be deciding the question of whether or not to shut down the pipeline. Unfortunately, that's going to take quite a bit more time. It was really just about establishing a process to resolve that uh, issue in light of, you know, the very significant competing interests and the need for all parties to be heard. In other planet news, a new study says that deadly heat waves could threaten nearly three-quarters of the world's inhabitants. Camilo Mora, researcher at the University of Hawaii and lead author of the study released this week, 
said that the overall risk of heat-related illness or death has climbed steadily since 1980, with around 30% of the world's population now living in climactic conditions that deliver deadly temperatures at least 20 days a year. The proportion of people at risk worldwide will grow to 48% by the year 2100, even if emissions are drastically reduced, while around three-quarters of the global population will be under threat by then if greenhouse gases are not curbed at all. The study was based in part on data from the Federal National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration and was released as hundreds of scientists and artists met in Norway this week for the Starmus IV Festival, which celebrates science and the arts. While physicist Stephen Hawking urged those gathered to support space exploration and the relocation of humans to other planets for survival, a call that is similar to that of entrepreneur Elon Musk, astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson was among those at Starmus who told the crowd that the focus needs to be instead on maintaining Earth as a habitable planet. So you terraform Mars, which means turn it into Earth, and then you, you go to Mars. And, but here's the problem. If you have the power of geoengineering to turn Mars into Earth, then you have the power to turn Earth back into Earth, for no matter what you did to it. So, so maybe the journey of which you speak is not a journey of distance into space. It's a journey in wisdom of how to become better shepherds of our civilization. Well, when it comes to pollution, not many people know that the U.S. Department of Defense is both the nation's and world's largest polluter. The publication EcoWatch reports that the U.S. military produces more hazardous waste than the five largest U.S. chemical companies combined and has left its toxic legacy throughout the world in the form of depleted uranium, oil, jet fuel, pesticides, defoliants like Agent Orange, and lead. In responding to the increasingly ramped up militarism by the U.S., there was a major anti-war movement gathering in Richmond, Virginia that ended this week. More than 300 attended the gathering that United Activists that organizers said are working around many domestic and international struggles and the underlying system responsible for imperialist wars, poverty, racism, sexism, the oppression of the LGBTQ community, attacks on Muslims and undocumented immigrants, environmental destruction, and all forms of injustice. Larry Hamm, director of People Organizing for Progress in Newark, called for a united front. Black people demonstrate against police brutality, and the white people who demonstrate for peace don't show up at those demonstrations, and that practice has to come to an end, brothers and sisters. Likewise, I say to my black comrades here in this room, we can't look at the peace movement as a white thing. It's a people's thing. If war destroys everybody, and I get this in my community, well, we're not going to that. That's the white people's thing. No. If you're a revolutionary, you got to fight on all fronts. And the front for peace is as important as the struggle against police brutality. And that conference and seminar was put on by the United National Anti-War Coalition. When we come back, 
Gerald Horn will weigh in on the U.S. involvement in wars today, right now, going on. Stay with us. Until the philosophy which old one race superior and another inferior is finally and permanently discredited and abandoned everywhere is war it's a war that until they're no longer first class and second class citizens of any nation until the color of a man's skin is of no more significance than the color of his eyes miss a war of course, the United States seemed to beckon the possibility of war and antagonisms in the Middle East this week when it shot down a Syrian bomber in Syria, later shot down an Iranian drone assisting Syria in the battle against ISIS, and then a U.S. fighter jet shadowed the plane carrying the Russian defense minister over the Baltic Sea. Joining me on the line to help us unpack the latest is our geopolitical analyst, author, and activist, Professor Gerald Horn. Well, Gerald, let's start with your take on these actions by the U.S. in Syria. Well, it's very ominous and it's quite dangerous. I've seen a number of commentaries that have raised the specter, believe it or not, of World War III. And unfortunately, this is not an exaggeration. Uh, Keep in mind that NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, as we speak, are holding military maneuvers on the border of Russia, Keep in mind that in Ukraine, for a few years now, there's been a raging conflict supported by many in the United States, and of course, on the other side of the barricades is Moscow. And this conflict in Syria seems to be becoming ever more complicated, because what's happening is that as the United States and its allies in Syria move against Islamic State and the Damascus-based regime and its allies in Iran and Russia do the same, increasingly they're coming into contact, if not conflict, and certainly, hopefully, cooler heads will prevail. Well, yeah, I read one commentary basically saying that it's getting pretty crowded, not only in the air, but on the ground. And throughout this conflict, you know, how come the United Nations or uh, international bodies have not held the United States to the same standard of international law? We have, we're not invited there, and uh, who are we to tell Syria not to, to fight ISIS in their own country? Well, as is often said, he who pays the piper plays the tune, and the United States contributes about one-fifth of the budget of the United Nations, and it has veto power not only in the Security Council, but in a sense veto power over who becomes the Secretary General. And because of that power, the United States, to a degree, is able to dictate to the United Nations. But certainly, as China grows in strength and influence, that kind of dictatorial power will diminish accordingly. 
So the, I mean, I, I can kind of understand that about the United Nations, but I just recall that, you know, during this whole controversy over Aleppo, when the Russia was basically at the invitation of, of the Assad uh, government was trying, Syria's government was trying to, uh, unseat uh, militants in Aleppo, people who were fighting against Syria, uh, there was just so much activity around the UN uh, in terms of, I guess, dictating U.S. policy, what the U.S. wanted to see happen and what the U.S. wanted to see said about Syria. And I guess it's just um, the the silence is deafening, you know, right now or the around uh, these types of actions by the U.S. Well, I think there may be a few rays of sunshine. The new regime in France has suggested that it's moving in a different direction on Syria. It has dropped its previous demand that President al-Assad step down as a conditioned president to a settlement. Recall that a few weeks ago, President Macron of France invited Vladimir Putin to Versailles, and even though the United States press coverage was rather slanted and skewed. Supposedly, according to the United States press, the meeting was all about upbraiding Putin about real and imagined human rights violations in Moscow. Actually, they moved closer on the question of Syria and a number of other pressing questions as well. And given the fact that France also also is a veto-wielding member of the United Nations Security Council, this is bound to have significance. Okay, well, you know, in these conversations, we've been reserving a special place for what we call little-known news, but as you just referenced the story about France, you know, most of what we're talking about has been ignored by the corporate media in its nonstop drumbeat uh, about Russia, 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 uh, in interfering in the elections or however it's being spun now. Uh, in the meantime, you know, cholera and famine are threatening much of the Horn of Africa. So, you know, what's the latest there? And, you know, what can Americans do about our tax dollars funding the Saudi government um, and its, its reign of terror in Yemen against the civilian population? Well, speaking of the Saudi government, it also ties in to our previous point. That is to say, the air, sea, and land embargo against Qatar, the Persian Gulf monarchy. It, Qatar is also a major exporter of liquefied natural gas. And interestingly enough, uh, Mr. Trump, President Trump, castigated Qatar at the same time that the U.S. Congress was moving to slap harsher sanctions on Russia, which is also a major exporter of natural gas, and is suspected that given the fact that Gutter is going to have difficulty in reaching its European markets because of difficulty in getting through the Suez Canal because Egypt has joined this embargo, and given the fact that these sanctions against Russia will also hamper Russia's ability to reach European markets as well, that is to say if they're implemented successfully, this will benefit another major producer of natural gas, which happens to be the United States of America. Now, hmm. with regard to Yemen and the cholera epidemic, keep in mind that this is uh, once more a much more deviltry by the Saudi regime, and this is also causing a flood of refugees to flow across the Red Sea into the Horn of Africa, which, of course, is having difficulties 
all of its own. In fact, it was just announced recently that the number of refugees and internally displaced persons is at the highest level since the end of World War II. A disproportionate percentage of these refugees and internally displaced persons are from the continent of Africa. This has a lot to do, of course, with the overthrow of the Gaddafi regime in Libya in 2011 and the kind of dislocation that created there, which has turned Libya into a, a launching pad for refugees from other parts of Africa trying to cross the Mediterranean into Europe. And, of course, many of them are either being detained by European authorities or perishing uh, in the Mediterranean seas. But there is also another point, and it ties into your comment as to what can be done, because one of the problems in Africa right now is climate change. Lake Chad, which a half century ago was about the size of Maryland, has shrunk by 90%. Now, imagine if Maryland shrunk by 90% and all the people in Maryland were forced into Baltimore. Obviously, it would be uh, quite devastating uh, to that particular city. And so what's happening with all of these folks being forced out of Africa, out of Niger, out of Chad, out of Nigeria, out of Cameroon, this has not only caused this refugee crisis, but it's also, of course, given fuel to Boko Haram, which is wreaking havoc in northern Nigeria in particular. Uh, this brings us to what can be done. And one of the things that we should focus on in this question of climate change is that with Mr. Trump pulling out of the Paris Climate Accord, there's a lot of consternation in the international community. And there has been serious talk about slapping tariffs on U.S. exports and then using the funds accumulated for climate refugees. And uh, quite a number of those who are fleeing Africa are, in fact, climate refugees. And it seems to me that our organization should get behind that proposal and join hands with those in the international community who are pushing for that proposal. Well, finally, I want to draw listeners' attention and get your reaction to the report I sent you earlier this week from a group called the Freedom Fund about sub-Saharan African people being sold at slave markets in Libya. The fund, the Freedom Fund, released the report on Tuesday, which was World Refugee Day. And, and the report said that Libya has become a transit point, as you just mentioned, for thousands of migrants and refugees desperate to cross the Mediterranean Sea into Europe in search of a better life. But many don't make it that far. Instead, the report continues, smugglers offering to take them to the coast are selling them to the highest bidder. First-hand witnesses report men and women are sold on the street for between 200 and $500 each. Once bought, they are held for ransom in mass prisons and detention centers, often run by militias or used as forced labor and for sexual exploitation. Conditions are extreme, with hundreds crammed into filthy rooms with inadequate space, food, or hygiene facilities. And so this sounds really horrific, and, and their families are being uh, you know, held up for basically to ransom out their loved ones that have gone to Libya to try to get across the Mediterranean. Well, it's ironic indeed that the first U.S. president of African descent has to take some responsibility for creating a crisis 
that has led to the efflorescence of slavery on the African continent when we know that a significant percentage of those who voted for him in 2008 and 2012, speaking of Barack Obama, were actually the descendants of slaves in North America. Now, this is quite ironic that the 2011 overthrow of the Gaddafi regime by the United States and its British and French allies has created this horrific situation that you've just detailed. And certainly, I think that in terms of the growing list of those who merit and deserve reparations from Washington, from the United States government, the government and people of Libya should be added to that list. Well, you know, we'll do our best to continue to follow these important stories that really I'm not really hearing uh, on media, certainly not the corporate media. Uh, I've been speaking with writer and activist Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you, Gerald, for joining me today. Thank you. Teleporting through trauma, teleporting through trauma, teleporting through trauma. I've been stacking my karma, Nefertiti, no drama. Make a feminist planet, woman haters get banished. Covered up or not, don't ever take us for granted. All around the world, love women ever shade Muslim women right now. 
a lot of young Muslim women during one of the holiest times of our year are asking whether or not they should go to their mosques to pray. This is the time that we're living in. These are the questions that we're asking, unfortunately. And because of this, young Muslim women across the country are right now organizing 10 vigils to commemorate and create a safe space to center Nabra. She was a beautiful person. Everyone who knew her saw her as a joyful, friendly, sociable person who everyone really liked. And we want to use this moment to really think about her and think about the legacy that she leaves behind. Because this is about commemorating her, about commemorating the other young Muslim women who've been impacting, impacted by this type of violence, by hate-based violence. Um, and because of this, we actually have a few asks that we want to leave you all with. We want to emphasize that this, must, this, this type of climate that has been continuously fueled by antagonism, by anti-Muslim rhetoric, by anti-Muslim policies, by solely for political gain is not okay and we have to do something to end this. And this something can't be telling Muslim women to take self-defense classes because it's not, the onus should not be on me. I'm a self-defense instructor and the onus should not be on me to make myself feel safe, right? It should be about the rest of the world because it's my right to be able to feel safe. It's every single Muslim woman's right to be able to feel safe and walk these streets safely. So I'm going to just give the five asks that we've been stating at every single one of the vigils that we're hosting today um, across the country. So the first is that we name and ask that our allies name that this attack, that what this attack really is, that it is a hate-based violence that targets Muslim women of color. We also want to emphasize that Muslim women need space where we can heal and feel safe. So this includes mosques and other community organizations. These organizations need to be more intentional in the way that they are opening space for Muslim women. Currently, 63% of mosques only, fair, only score fair or poor on a scale of being women-friendly, which is horrifying. We also demand that allies and Muslim men become more effective upstanders in the face of violence facing Muslim women. We also want every single person here to stand and continue to stand and show solidarity and support for Muslim women-led initiatives and organizations. And last, we also want to emphasize that this moment should not be used as a moment to pit communities of color against each other. This is not what we're here for. We should not take this as an opportunity to villainize undocumented communities. We do not want law enforcement to use this as an opportunity for us to stand against each other. We actually should take this as an opportunity to recognize that all of our struggles are tied together and that we need to work together to fight against white supremacy. And so this is what we're here today for. And we thank you so much again for being here. And we hope that you do commit to these five things. And now I'll pass the mic to our next speaker. Thank you so much. And now I'm going to introduce Dr. Maha Hilal, um, who's been one of the other Muslim women organizers in the district with me that's been doing work for quite a while. And again, it's really heartful for me to see you know, there were times that we did vigils like this or events around Islamophobia and only five to ten people showed up. Um, the fact that we are seeing hundreds right now, again, is incredibly inspiring to me. My own community in particular to see Muslim women in this space is just, we need each other, we need to protect each other. But also to see communities of color also up in this space also really makes me feel really happy. So, thank you. So, good evening everyone and thank you all again for being here tonight um, to remember Sister Nabra. Uh, before I start my remarks, I want to read a poem called America by Fatima Aswar. 
It goes as follows. Am I not your baby, brown and not allowed? My own language, my teeth pulled from mouth, tongue, bloated with corn syrup. America, didn't you raise me? Bomb the country of my fathers and then tell me to go back to it? Didn't you mold the men who murder children in schools, who spit at my bare arms and uncovered head, who makes and remarks me orphan, who burns? My home watches me rebuild and burns it down again. Wasn't it you who uproots and mangles the addresses until there are none? So we're here again to mourn the loss of Sister Nabra, who died on Sunday. As Darakshan mentioned, the police has indicated that they believe this was motivated by road rage, or that road rage is the explanation for her brutal murder, in addition to allegations that she was also raped. So I want to tell you why, as a Muslim, I find these claims extremely hard to believe. And the reason is, is because since 9-11, since the war on terror, Muslims have been systemically targeted and discriminated against by the U.S. government. This has happened through various avenues, numerous laws and policies, and what we are seeing now under the Trump administration, although he's perhaps more explicit in demonizing Muslims, is nothing new. And so when we see the rise of hate crimes, it should be thought of as a natural extension of what is happening at the state level. So when we learn about a Muslim woman getting murdered, being kidnapped, possibly raped, unfortunately it comes as no surprise. Because as a Muslim, I have learned, and we all collectively have learned, that we are not safe here. That not only will we be targeted by the U.S. government, but we are very likely to be targeted by members of our own societies. And this is a problem despite the fact that many of us are not from the community directly impacted, that is the precise point of a hate crime. A hate crime is not just directed at one individual. It's directed at the entire community to which that individual belongs. So I hope that we get justice for Nabra. I hope that one day her family will see justice. And I pray that their pain eases with time. And I know that's almost an impossible thing to ask. But I hope you can all join me in really praying for her family and really hoping that there will be justice for her at some point in the future, whatever that looks like and whatever the family demands that it looks like. Thank you. I appreciate Maha for starting it out by talking about institutional and structural Islamophobia. I'm going to expand that to talk about gendered Islamophobia. Because the truth of the matter is, the way Muslim women have been uniquely targeted, our bodies are sites of violence. The violence we're seeing in this incident, the fact that out of a group of Muslim youth, this individual targeted a young Muslim woman, kidnapped her, possibly assaulted her, raped her, and then killed her is gendered Islamophobia. It is specific to the ways in which women in our society have always bared the brunt of harassment, violence, and male rage. In this case, because she is a 
because my blood is boiling and it has been for as long as I can remember because the space that I occupy, the person that I am, the fact that I have the audacity to exist in the body that I do has been rendered criminal in this state. I stand here today because my ancestors have taught me what resistance looks like. And I stand here today full of rage and I don't apologize for it. I will not suppress it. My anger is real. It is valid. It is righteous. And we will stay angry. We will stay angry until the interconnected systems of oppression that have killed my siblings in faith, my black and brown siblings, my trans and queer siblings, my disabled siblings. I see them dying on the streets. I see the spectacle of black death all over my timeline. I will stay angry until these systems are dismantled. I will stay angry and that is righteous. I know that in this moment, the trauma is real. The trauma is so real and we have to learn to cope in healthy and constructive ways. And that means that you need to center and amplify the voices of those who are at particular risk of violence in this state. And that means that you have to commit because every one of you here, you came because this matters. So make sure it stays important. Don't forget about Nebra. Don't forget about Charlena. Don't forget about Fawando Castile. Don't forget about person who has died at the hands of a white supremacist state. Do not forget them. Say their names. Say their names over and over. Make it so that everyone knows we will not be silent in the face of terror. We will not be silent in the face of hate. We will not silently accept the lie that is peddled that this somehow happened in a vacuum. That this was not at all impacted by a climate of dehumanization, a climate of hatred that has existed for years upon years before this country became a country, while it was being built on the backs of slaves and it was being built on the land stolen from natives in this country. We will stay angry and that is righteous and that is your Islamic duty to bear witness even against yourselves for justice. So I ask and I challenge each, of one, each one of you here, what will you do? How will you commit to this cause? There is no one right way to do it. There is no one right way to be an activist, but you have to commit. You have to keep this in the headlines. You have to keep agitating. You have to keep fighting. You have to keep speaking up. I don't care how you do it, just do it. Because these systems won't be dismantled on their own. It will take all of us. It will take the allies. It will take each of us. We will have to work together to dismantle these interconnected systems until this truly becomes a space where equality actually exists for all of us. Thank you.
You've been listening to voices from Standing Against Violence, D.C. Vigil, and IFTAR, attended by hundreds on June 20th in Northwest D.C. to remember Nabra Hassanin, a 17-year-old Muslim girl kidnapped, assaulted, and murdered in Fairfax County, Virginia on Sunday. The last voice you heard was Aza Altaraifi. When we come back, Janine Jackson, host of Counterspin, joins us. Amina Alada Akta. I am the one dreaming beautifully. Amina Alada I dream of things beautiful I do dream I dream of things beautiful Well, everything we've discussed on the show today, from war to health care to the assault on our environment, has been framed in some way by mass media, even if that framing means erasure. And joining me for this month's extended focus on media and culture is media critic Janine Jackson, host of the nationally syndicated show Counterspin. Welcome back to On the Ground, Janine. Happy to be here. Well, when we spoke last month, I, I could not have guessed, actually, that there could be a further ratcheting up of tensions internationally, domestically, and in how news organizations either cover or don't cover our world. So I want to start with how Counterspin kind of looked at the world of media for June 2017. Well, of course, one of the big things that we looked at was health care, and that was something where we had, as listeners know, we had Congress members saying, yeah, we're going to make this law that's going to be literally life or death, but we're going to do it in secret. And we're not going to even let other Congress members know what we're doing here. And the cynicism, you know, was so thick you could cut it with a knife, you know. There was mm. the one Senate aide who, when they said, why aren't you going to release this to the public, he said, we're not stupid. So we talked to Trudy Lieberman on our show, who's been reporting on health care for decades. And what's interesting about her approach is that she's a consumer reporter, and she comes at it from that angle. She doesn't do political football, and Democrats are going to trade this with Republicans hmm. for that. You know, she's talking about it from, I'm a person who is going to turn 65, or I'm a person with a disability, and I need SSDI, and what are these changes going to mean for me? And that, I have to say, and she didn't disagree is a big gaping hole in corporate media's approach to all of this. I mean, you can read a story about health care. You can't say, it's just as you said, it's the, the way they frame it, the way they cover it, and sometimes that's erasure. Well, on health care, there's a story about health care every day, but almost none of them are really coming from this human perspective of really exploring what will it mean for you or for me. 
Well, it's interesting that you mentioned health care because that links a, a bit to the things I've been thinking about in terms of media this month. We had this shooting in Virginia of uh, Representative Steve Scalise, several congressional aides, and some Capitol Hill police officers. And in the aftermath of it, I think there was some reporting about Steve Scalise's own policies toward health care, his uh, whenever that was mentioned, if that if someone dared to mention that or to talk about his own policies, it was somehow considered taboo. And I was just really upset at, at the idea that you couldn't tell the truth, even in the aftermath of a shooting like that, that you couldn't talk about how this person was going to receive very good health care and the best that the hospitals could offer in Northern Virginia or in this region. But the fact that at the very same time, you know, policies were being created um, by his group in Washington that would really deny good health care to most people. So I just was really, was really um, struck by that. Yes, I'm struck by it too. You know, we're always going to rely on journalists' judgment. I think we've talked about that before. And obviously, there are instances in which you can say you're putting in context, but what you're really doing is trying to justify a harm that's been done to someone. That's not what was being done here. This was an example of people simply noting that in this circumstance, you know, you're going to be reporting on Scalise's health care. There's updates every hour. So it's completely relevant to mm -hmm. note the health care that he will receive while he is, in fact, in the process of gutting health care for other people. Yes, that's a question of a journalist's judgment. They could do that in a crass way. They could do that in a non-illuminating way. But is it off-base? Should it be off-base as, as news? Absolutely not. And, you know, what one looks for in these kinds of cases is at least something approaching a single standard. You know, not long after, golly, the shootings and attacks come so close together, I hardly can keep them straight, but the attack on the mosque in Finsbury Park in London, media leapt on the history of the mosque. Um, you know, years ago, it, well, we understand it was a, um, you know, a hotbed of Islam militants, and, you know, they immediately went into the history of the mosque, which that mosque had, in fact, made tremendous changes and done outreach in the community and was, in fact, very um, well regarded in the community and, and, and peace loving. But they went back to this ancient history as though that were context to explain why that mosque was attacked. And my point is just to say that context is a tool. We see reporters say, oh, we just need to put in some historical background in some cases. And then in other cases, when things that are relevant are tied into a story, oh, well, no, 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 that's, that's simply not done. Obviously, it all has to do with a certain worldview um, that tells us it's okay to consider um, some people bad, to delve into some people's motivations and this, that, and the other but that other times it's not polite to say certain things and it tends to only cut one way. Yeah, and again, it's as if one life matters more, elevating the importance of one life over another life. And that brings me to the case of Philando Castile and the police officer Geronimo Yanez being acquitted. They just released after the verdict the dash cam video, which was just more horrific because you just really see how unhinged Yanez was so that within seconds after approaching the car and that he's shot this man to death 
But uh, what really struck me is is the fact that the Facebook video uh, by Dim- Diamond Reynolds, his girlfriend in the car, that so much of the world saw was not played in the trial. And this struck me as a media story. And the fact that so many of the jurors allegedly said that they had not heard of the case before they were summoned to jury. And it just reminded me that, you know, I'm living in a certain media world. And a lot of people who watch Fox News or MSNBC or or the Daily Beast or whatever they're tuning into, they're living in their media world. I just couldn't believe that these people who actually live right in that area and would have also had local news had never heard of the case. Had managed to escape all knowledge. Well, if you have done jury duty, you know that sometimes one side or the other will go out of their way to select jurors based specifically on their ignorance of the case, which, you know, raises its own questions. I have a tremendous, I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but I do not understand many choices made by the prosecution in both this case and in a number of cases like this. I cannot understand how this dash cam video is now being released after um, the verdict. And I'm looking at the New York Times. They put together some legal experts and they're looking at the dash cam video saying, well, this doesn't seem to fit with what I understand to be police protocol, you know, they have all kinds of questions based on that. So I think a couple of things. Number one, I think it reminds us and underscores what we should have always known, which is that body cams and video are not a panacea. They are not the uh, an automatic road to justice for us. There is a tremendous amount of issue and struggle around who controls that video who gets to edit that video, when that video gets released, and the Philando Castile case makes that very clear. But I want to say something else, too, which is that I remember Rodney King, and I remember watching the jurors watch the video that, again, you know, the whole world saw Rodney King on the ground being beaten and kicked by many multiple police officers and And I remember and I I yes and I remember a juror watching that video watching the same video that I was watching saying look at how he's leading the action look at how Rodney King is controlling the action which is what the prosecution had argued in court and I in fact dug up a quote from the attorney from for one of the police officers in the Rodney King case And he said of the jury, he said, I tried to put them in the shoes of the police officers, and I think I was able to do that. We got the jurors to look at the case, not from the eye of the camera or the eye of a video cameraman, but from the eyes of the officers who were out there that night. So we should never underestimate a person's ability to look right at something that we are seeing and see it in a different way. And it's just an argument for me if we needed one that video is going to be one of those things that might be necessary but is never going to be sufficient in really ending police violence against black people. That's always amazing to me. My example is years ago when L.A. Law was a a TV show. (laughs) I know I'm dating myself, but I remember still working as a reporter in New York at that time. And I remember going into the into work and just saying just, you know, to my pod mate who was a a young uh, Japanese man and and saying, you know, oh, you know, um, you know, I was just saying how this black lawyer was not guilty of this crime in the way that he was a murderer. And he looked at me like, of course he's a murderer. 
did it. And I realized that someone could see the same show I was watching and think something totally different. Absolutely. And, you know, yeah. we have research where you, and specifically with police officers, where they say black people look superhuman, look like monsters, look, you know, larger than life. Yeah, like they if said they about can, Mike Brown. Yeah, Exactly. But, if they yeah. can say that about a person who's standing right in front of them, then it's not all that difficult to imagine they can say that about a person they're seeing on, on, on videotape. On and video. the thing about, you know, Philando Castile, it teaches us about the limits of video. It also teaches us about the limits of the law itself, you know, and you have to come back to these Supreme Court rulings that tell jurors you can say that a person's act, a police officer's actions were reasonable if another police officer would deem them reasonable. You know, that's one thing. And then they say if a police officer says they're in fear for their life, well, then that's that's all you need to know. You know, um, once they say the magic words, I was in fear for my life, then a jury is urged and persuaded and encouraged every which way to see that as the deciding factor. We know that if an officer's fear means a killing is justified and officers fear black people just because they're black, well then you've made yourself a tight little circle of rationalized and lethal um, racism that we have. And punity, yeah. And punity yeah. that we have yeah. to bust out of. What we talk about is the way that media direct our attention and our feelings as human beings and I think all we're trying to say is you know there are a lot of human beings that that we can be caring about that we should be caring about and somehow right. get past and that, that, that matter and and that art art kind of brings you back to the humanity part and media often does not but art does well, thank you so much for joining me today, Janine. I've been speaking with Janine Jackson, host of the nationally syndicated show Counterspin. Thank you, Janine. Thank you, Esther. And that will do it for today's show. Thanks again to our guests, Janine Jackson and Gerald Horn. And thanks to Chantel James, Michelle Roberts, Lydia Curtis, Michael Byfield, and Floyd DJ Waheed Aaron. The music we played in this hour included Bob Marley and the Whalers, War, Mona Haydar, Hijabi, and Navasha Dea, I Too Dream of Beautiful Things, featuring Alan Johnson. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach the show at onthegroundshow.org, where you can listen to all of our shows. Please like our Facebook and Twitter pages at On The Ground Show. I'm trying to get up our likes. we got to get up to 500 likes. I know there are 500 people on Facebook listen to the show. I'm Esther Averam. I'll be at the Oneness Festival tomorrow, sharing space with the Urban Herbalist and the Pieces Collective. Keep raising your voice out there. Peace.